You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org. Great, if you've got a Bible, it's well worth turning to Colossians and chapter 1. Colossians and chapter 1. We're looking at this series, In Christ. Uh, this always seems so trivial after we've just watched the video like we've watched, which is so challenging. But I guess what I think, one of the questions we struggle with is who is the best? Who is the best? I don't know about you, I, I remember being on the playground as a child saying, my dad's better than your dad. You know, it's almost like, who's the best? Reality is our teenagers face that kind of pressure at school all the time. What results will you get in GCSEs? That carries on past school, it goes to university, doesn't it? What degree are you going to get? How good are you? Even as adults, we probably foster this a lot of the time. I brought my daughter a cushion saying, the best daughter in Hanwell. <laughs> I brought my wife a birthday card saying, the best wife in Ealing. <laughs> the reality is that so often, and we think about this even like on TV shows, You think about it, we want to find out who is the best. Who's the best at singing? Who's the best at baking? Who's got the best, Britain's got talents? They're all these things. Who is the best? And the reality is, with all of these programs on a Saturday, there's a panel of judges. And they're all trying to decide who's the best. And sometimes I think that's probably how we approach life. Who's the best? Even at work, if you're really honest, somebody's thinking, who's getting promoted? Who's brought in the most sales? Who's achieved their goal? In sport, we do it all the time. What is the Premier League about if it's not to discover who is the best? I guess we have an inbuilt desire to rate, to value, and to worship. I looked up, I stuck this in the internet this week. Who do you think is the most significant human being ever? And they produce a whole list. And uh, you can do that this afternoon. Don't do it on your phone now. I will be offended. But the reality is this is, who is the best? Well, I believe that the Apostle Paul, when he was writing this letter, answers that in this passage. I'm going to read from verse 15 through to verse 23. It's called in my Bible, the supremacy of Christ. He, this is talking about Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. 
once, you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now, he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel you heard and has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. I feel nervous preaching on such a great passage. So let's pray. We're amazed when we stop and consider how supreme you are. Jesus, it's so easy for us to rate and value ourselves, to compete and to compare. But when we read a passage like this, we, we feel blown away. I feel so unworthy. So unworthy to pray, but by your blood. So unworthy to to speak, but by your blood. So unworthy to call you my friend, but by your blood. I pray that you'd speak into each heart this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. As I'm reading this passage, I, to be honest, I'm, I'm totally blown away by this. Some describe it as a poem. Some describe it as a song that I believe Paul had crafted together. This was only 30 years after Jesus Christ had died on a cross. Now, you've got to remember that a cross was so horrific, we can think of it as a symbol of Christianity now. We've sanitized it. But in those days, it, it was so barbaric, people wouldn't mention it at dinner. It was like... What a cross, it was a criminal, it was the lowest of the low, it was the scum of the earth. But within 30 years, Paul is singing of this incredible supreme being. We know that Paul is writing this letter. If you were here last week, we mentioned about the Colossian heresy. We don't actually know what the Colossian heresy was, I said. But what I was reading about just this week is that if you work in a bank... If you want to discover a dodgy note, you don't look at all the dodgy notes out there. You just stare at the real one. Because they reckon the longer that you study the real note, the more likely you are to spot a forgery. And so almost what Paul is writing here, right at the beginning of this letter, is saying, look, some of you have got caught up in looking at dodgy things, dodgy theology. I want you to look at Jesus Christ. Because when you stop and you gaze upon him, then you will spot the forgeries in your own life. We know that Paul was writing this from prison. And yet he's full of gratitude. In fact, last week I talked all about thanksgiving and prayer. But it's almost like he cannot even write about it. He just suddenly erupts into it. I was reading this week about a guy called Charles Wesley. Charles Wesley was one of the two brothers that I guess founded the Methodist Church. Charles Wesley wrote 9,000 hymns in his lifetime. 9,000. I I mean, you know, obviously I'm just a sad guy that's got too much time, I guess. I worked out it's like 10 verses a day. He wrote one hymn to be sung for when you're being stoned whilst you're preaching. 
It's funny, I don't think we've done that on a Sunday morning yet. But he was so quiet with, actually, I just want to sing of how good Jesus is. And that's just like the Apostle Paul. I find that really challenging. Because I think I don't sing enough because I take Jesus for granted. I went to the cinema recently and watched the film Dunkirk. Has anybody else seen that one? You know, this, my grandfather was one of those that was at Dunkirk. I know that he got an enhanced pension because he was affected by what happened at Dunkirk. And after I watched the film, I thought, I wish I'd spent longer while he was still alive asking his stories. But I took him for granted. And now I think the opportunity's passed. And sometimes I think if I'm really honest, I can take Jesus for granted. Now, you could say, Pete, you're preaching to the choir. You guys are all in church. But I think that the danger is that so often we can, we can sing about him on Sunday but forget about him on Monday. And I think what Paul is trying to say is, come on, I want to stoke your eyes again. Look at who Jesus Christ is. Someone has said, and, and I've not checked this one out, but I believe it to be true, this is the most concentrated description of the glories of Jesus in the whole of the New Testament. So what he's trying to say is, come on, I just want you to focus upon Jesus. Now, there's going to be a danger. There's a health warning. I'm trying to give it to you right now before I get going. The danger of preaching on a passage like this is that we study it rather than worship the God that it's about. And so that's partly why we've changed the whole meeting around this morning. I will be finished today by half past 11 so that we can respond and not just think, oh, that was interesting. We can think, this is not just to stir us in study. I believe study is good. It's to stir us in worship. What are the three things I would like to say this morning? The first is, he is the creator. The second is that he is the redeemer. And thirdly, he is the hope giver. Jesus the creator. I believe that you can see this. I've quoted, I don't think I've ever quoted this in a sermon before. I'm quoting the Living Bible. It's a translation. Sometimes you just think, how does it help bring it alive? From verse 15, it goes like this. Christ is the exact likeness of the unseen God. He existed before God made anything at all. And in fact, Christ himself is the creator who made everything in heaven and earth. The things we can see and the things we can't. The spirit world with all its kings and kingdoms, its rulers and authorities, all were made by Christ for his own use and glory. He was before all else began. And it is his power that holds everything together. You see, I believe the first part of this song is declaring that Christ is the creator supreme. A little boy came home from Sunday school. He said to his parents, if Jesus came back today, would he be able to cope with computers? You see, the reality is that we can all think of Jesus as a little out of date. Oh, he he walked around in a nice robe and, you know, he fed people, but what about right here, right now? Whereas actually, what this passage is saying, that Jesus created and knows everything. He is the image of the invisible God. 
Now, we can tend to think of an image maybe like a logo. I don't know. If, if I held up a picture of an, an apple with a little bite out of it, you'd all go, oh, computers, Macs, you know what I'm saying? We can think it. Too. But actually, in Greek ideas, an image had a share in the reality that it revealed. And so it wasn't just, oh, well, he was just pointing to God. He was God in human flesh. Jesus himself said in the Gospel of John, he who has seen me has seen the Father. You see, if you see Jesus, you see what God is like. Jesus is merciful and loving, then you know God is merciful and loving. What does Jesus do? He rescues us from darkness because actually that reveals something of the Father. Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. This is a title that's used throughout the Old Testament. Psalms, Exodus, Isaiah, Jeremiah. It means he's distinguished in time as supreme. He's primacy. He's first in all of creation. He's the one that is due to inherit. It's almost like he's throwing name after name, accolade after accolade. This is Jesus. In him... All is created, heaven and earth, visible and invisible. We don't think like this, but the people that he was writing to thought in a logical order. So they would describe heaven as the highest, earth underneath, visible under that, invisible under that. And so what he was writing to say, look, everything you can think of from top to bottom, not something out there, but heaven to the invisible, He's over all things. He reigns over all things. He holds all things together. Someone said Jesus is the reason that our cosmos doesn't become a chaos. Because he holds it together. I don't believe that he created the world, wound it up. Some of you think, do you ever wind up clocks? Yeah, before we had batteries that do it all for us, you'd wind up a clock and you'd leave it there and generally it would just wind down. And some people have thought, oh, is that what Jesus did when he created? No, I honestly believe he sustained our very breath throughout the night. That's how great he is. John Owen, he was an English pastor. I've not put any quotes up here today because I thought I just wanted it to be the Bible today. But John Owen, he was an English pastor, he describes this as this. He created the world like a musician and a musical note, which ceases the moment a musician decides not to sustain it anymore. It's almost like that is how Jesus had created. Now the Colossians thought he created and then he walked away. But actually Paul is trying to say, no, he is the incredible creator. I mean, some of you I know be scientific and you think, oh, Pete, tell them about how many galaxies there are. Tell them about these species that we've only just discovered. And that was just on the seat of a tube. No, you know, there's animals everywhere, fungi everywhere that we know nothing about. I think, oh, wow. For me personally, I'll be brutally honest, I often feel most caught up in worship when I'm by the sea. There's something about being stood next to the ocean and looking as far as you can and think, man, I feel small. And who keeps pumping all those waves in? Now, I know you tell me it's the moon, but I just think, do you know what? It makes me think, what an incredible creator. I've got friends, maybe you're one, that it's the mountains. You know, and you just sit up on a mountain, you look out and you just think, man, this is breathtaking. Paul writes and says, do you know, everything created He did it. In him, by him, through him, for him. He is the creator. 
Everything can be think, man, surely he's worthy of my praise. Just from that. But then Paul goes into what I call point two. Jesus then redeems us. He is sufficient for our redemption. I'm now going to quote another Bible, which will come up here. This passage, it's the easy-to-read translation. It says this, He is the head of the body, which is the church. And he's the beginning of everything else. And he's the first among all who will be raised from death. So in everything, he is the most important. God was pleased for all of himself to live in the Son. And through him, God was happy to bring all things back to himself again. Things on earth and things in heaven. God made peace by using the blood sacrifice of his Son on the cross. Basically, what Paul is then saying is, look, Jesus created everything. Actually, he redeems you as well. Don't be so impressed by your own achievements, but be awed by his. He is the head of the body. We don't, you know, the, the head is the one in charge. The rest of the body, it's almost like we're here to fulfill what he wants to do. He's the source and the life of the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. The firstborn. He's not just a small little creature. That's why we gather next Sunday afternoon, because actually he's the firstborn. There will be many that will follow him. That's why we gather and learn how to do it better. He's the fullness of God dwelt in him. You know, I've, I've, I've probably read 11 commentaries this week on this passage. And I just sit there and I think, I just cannot get my head around how great God is. <laughs> you just think, oh, I wish I could make it all simple to you. But I know that I can't. Because actually there's something of mystery that causes me to worship I mean, God dwelt in this man. I mean, the, it says fully man, fully God. I mean, this concept, I think, I've just got too small a brain to understand it. But what it does is it, it makes me want to worship him. He reconciled us to God. Our sin, our shame, our guilt, our anger, our frustration, our bitterness, our selfishness, our greed, our arrogance. It has created a barrier between us and God. A barrier we could not break down. Even if you have done three tough mudders and you think, I can take anything, you could not break that barrier down between you and God. But Paul says, we have peace through the blood of the cross. Again, I'm not putting these up here. I'm sorry. I only really wanted the word to go up that pushed us. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was a German theologian, said that God let Jesus be pushed out of the world and onto the cross. He's almost saying, actually, he got pushed there and he, he suffered in our place. Reconciliation is a work of God. Nothing that we can earn, nothing that we can achieve. It's something that we accept that he has done completely. That's why we only baptize people once. I always find it fascinating when you say to people, Have you, are you a Christian? They say yes. And you say, would you like to get baptized? You think, oh, I'm not sure. I, I feel a bit awkward getting out there. And you say, oh, it would be great. Tell them about what Jesus has done in your life. And oh, they get baptized. And afterwards, they say, can I do it again next Sunday? And we always have to say, no, I'm afraid not. Why? Because it symbolizes a work that was done once and for all by Jesus Christ. 
You see, so many of us think, oh, that was such fun, I'll do it again, I'll do it again, or whatever. No, 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 we don't add anything to it. It's once and for all. Jesus Christ died on the cross. His blood paid a price that I could not pay. So Paul is saying that this is the Jesus that created everything. This is the Jesus that died in your place, that redeemed you, that has brought you back to God. And then he turns. I believe Paul had three points, but that's probably because I have two. Verse 21 to verse 23. I've got it this time from the message. I'm just trying to bring it alive to us this morning. You yourselves are a case study of what he does. At one time, you had all your backs turned to God, thinking rebellious thoughts of him, giving him trouble every chance you got. But now, by giving himself completely at the cross, actually dying for you, Christ brought you over to God's side and put your lives together, whole and holy in his presence. You don't walk away from a gift like that. You stay grounded and steady in the bond of trust, constantly tuned into the message, careful not to be distracted or diverted. There is no other message, just this one. Every creature under heaven gets the same message. I, Paul, am a messenger of this message. What do I feel is happening here? I feel that Paul has lifted their eyes up so much and said, you know, Christ created, Christ redeemed. I don't know about you, sometimes, it, it, I don't know, you go to a shopping centre and you think, God, all I want to do is get into Wilco's and get out. And I look at this great map and I think, where am I? And then suddenly I see this red dot and it says, you are here. And I believe that's what's happening here. What Paul says is, look, this is great big picture that I've just painted. This is picture of Christ that created. This is picture that Christ that redeemed. And you can look at it and you think, God, where am I? And Paul says, this is right where you are. This is your part of the story. He says, I want to describe your past, your present, and your future. He says, in the past, you were alienated and enemies of God. Not just, antagon- you're not just apathetic, you were antagonistic towards God. I say it again, and I know it offends, I'm sure. I don't believe that people are essentially good at heart. Evil actions come from evil hearts. The Bible says we have our back to God. We have rebellious thoughts. We want to give him trouble. And then you love this. Uh, Some of you know there's a a great preacher by the name of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He used to preach in Westminster Chapel back in the 50s. He preached for 12 years through the book of Romans. 12 years. And he never finished it. He spent three weeks preaching on the two words I'm just about to say. Three weeks. But now. You see, he described the sin of Romans. I think it's in Romans 3, if I remember correctly. Describe all the sin that's happened. And then he says, but now. And so Paul says, look, in your past you were enemies of God. But now you've been rescued. You have peace with God. You are holy in his sight. You are justified. That's a legal right standing. If you stood before God right now and you're a Christian and you said, look, I'm sorry for what I've done. I live for you. You are right. Not because I'm good enough, but because he died for me. I mean, I was trying to think of a a picture, you know, and I think the biggest contrast is like darkness and light. 
But the reality is in healing, that doesn't work because at night, it's never completely dark, is it? My parents live in the countryside and you go and stay there and it's quite scary because when it's dark, it's, it's dark. And I think I can't hear the blues and twos going down the street and it actually feels really dark here and it's almost like you close the curtains and I can't actually see outside anymore. That's the contrast between darkness and light. Total contrast. And that's what Paul is trying to describe. He said you had this absolute dark past. This is your present. It all changes. Your future, he says, is in the gospel. The gospel is a stable rock on which you can stand. It's a steadfast truth in a tumultuous world. Don't be shifted to anything else. Which is why we come back to breaking bread week after week. Not that we get stuck in some tradition. Please keep us free from that. But actually, because what we realize is the gospel changes everything. His blood was shed for us. I believe that this passage really challenged the church. As I told you before, one of the things that the church was struggling with was known as Gnostics. You see, they described physical as evil. And Paul, in this song, says physical isn't evil. God created it. They said Jesus was spirit. In fact, Gnostics at the time reckoned if you followed Jesus in the sand, there'd be no footprints because he was spirit. And what Paul teaches is Jesus had a real body. They described that the way to God was barred and you had to try and work it out. That's what Gnosticism was all about. Jesus, Paul teaches, opened the way to everyone. They described that there was many different ways to God and maybe Jesus was one of them. Paul says Jesus is unique. They said as a Gnostic, the only way to get to God was through intellectualism. And it tended to be for the elite, those that had money to think about these things. Paul says that Jesus is for all. I would say one of the biggest dangers of the Colossians that is addressing is this. They reduced who Jesus Christ was. And Paul blows that out of the water. And sometimes I wonder if that's the biggest challenge for us. We forget how great Jesus is. You may even cringe as I say these things, but I would say from this song, I would believe Jesus is the only God. Jesus is the only creator. Jesus is the only sustainer of creation. Jesus is the only saviour. Jesus is the only finisher of our salvation. I would say that Paul in this poem writes out Jesus plus nothing. I told a slight lie. I said nobody else would get onto the, OH, uh, the, the projector this morning apart from the Bible. But Edward Moat slipped through the net. He wrote a song that sometimes we sing. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking stand. My prayer this morning is that we get a bigger view of who Jesus is. I don't know what you're facing this week. I don't know what heresy might be 
slipping into your life. Golly, that's a shock, isn't it? But let's not look at forged notes. Let's look at who Jesus is. Some of you may have heard this before. I've heard it many times. In preparing, I sat and watched it and wept again. There was a prayer, I believe, that was recorded of a pastor in America saying, do you know him? I said at the start, I want this to be something that stirs us to worship, not just a study. So we're now going to play this and listen to this guy's description of who is this Jesus. Because I almost feel this is a modern day Paul that is stirring us to look again. So if we could play that, it'd be great. The Bible says my king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's a key to knowledge. He's a wellspring of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a pathway of peace. He's a roadway of righteousness. He's a highway of holiness. He's a gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And his yoke is easy. And his burden is light. I wish I could describe him for you. He's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. Well, you can't get him out of your mind. You see, you can't get him off of your head. 
Terror couldn't kill him, death couldn't handle him. 